We're going to go right into the scripture and we'll sing, uh, sing a couple more songs afterward. But we're going to look at the book of Amos tonight. The book of Amos. We've been studying these entire books uh, for the last several months. And we've come to the book of Amos. And it's kind of fun in these prophets, you know, they're, they're, they're not so big as the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus are. Um, we can we can kind of we can get into them. We can cover the bulk of them. They're also not as familiar to us uh, as some of those other books are, and so that's fun as well. And it's been a good experience for me to uh, to get to know uh, some of these books better and to spend some time in them and studying them. But anyway, we're going to look at Amos tonight, and we're just going to read one verse from Amos chapter five twenty four to get us rolling. We'll be looking at the whole book and moving through. Uh, the book, but Amos 5.24 will get us rolling, and uh, actually, I think it might help if we, we start at uh, verse 21. So we'll read Amos 5.21 through 24, and this will give us an idea of kind of what's going on in Israel at this time, and it'll get us, give us an idea of some things we're going to talk about a little more in a moment. But uh, Amos 5.21 through 24. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness, like a never-failing stream. This is God's word for his people tonight. In his commentary on Amos, James Montgomery Boyce writes this, The book of Amos is one of the most readable, relevant, and moving portions of the word of God. But in much of church history, little or no attention has been paid to it. Why? It is because the book speaks very powerfully against social injustices and religious formalism. And many who would otherwise read the book have been implicated in such sins and are condemned by it. To put it another way, the book of Amos has a history of stepping on people's toes as it calls them out for their misuse of wealth and their empty religious practice. We might say it especially steps on the toes of people like us in the West who, from a world's perspective, have it good, right? Amos was a farmer from a place called Tekoa. Koa was about five miles south of Bethlehem, which was about four miles south and, I think, east of Jerusalem, maybe southwest, don't, don't quote me on that, but roughly nine miles south of Jerusalem was Tekoa. Uh, he was called by God to be a prophet when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam was king of Israel. This puts his ministry between 790 and 750 B.C., both of those kings reigned for a long time, and so Amos's ministry is somewhere in that time span. He's one of the earliest prophets, and he ministered specifically to the northern kingdom of Israel, but 
Throughout the book, you'll also see he has words for the southern kingdom of Judah as well. Now, what we need to understand about this time in Israel's history is that it was a very prosperous time. There was peace between Israel and Judah. The economy was thriving. Assyria wasn't quite yet the threat it would become. And so from a worldly perspective, it was a wonderful time to be living in Israel. Yet all was not as it seemed. We have this tendency, and we really have to guard against this. As pastor, I find myself warning people against thinking uh, uh, in such ways often, but we have this tendency to think that health and wealth and political stability are all signs of God's favor. Like if we have those things, then certainly God is smiling on us. We're getting it right. But in the days of Amos, that was not at all the case. And as Amos will go on to make clear, their wealth and prosperity isn't a result of God's favor, but it's a result of their own corruption and their religious practice, which they carried out with great pomp and circumstance in the name of the Lord, well, it actually had little to do with the Lord. The book of Amos can be outlined this way. If you want to follow along briefly, beginning at chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, make up simply the introduction. Here we see really the who, what, where, and when of the book of Amos. Chapter 1, 3, through chapter 2, 16 Amos pronounces a series of judgments, first against Israel's enemies, but then against Judah and Israel themselves. Look at chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, for instance, and this pattern you see throughout this section, but chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His decrees, because they've been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. For this is what the Lord says for three sins of Israel now. Even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice To the oppressed, father and son use the same girl, and so profane my holy name. Right? That series we see, uh, that section we see a series of, of judgments. First against Israel's enemies, then against Judah, then against Israel. Uh, herself. In chapters 3 through 6, Amos prophesies specifically against Israel. Here he tells them that divine judgment is imminent because the people have oppressed the poor and because their worship is empty. And even though God sends them warnings in the form of plagues on their crops and various things of that nature, the people just don't get it and they have not repented and the Lord's patience has run out. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord is sworn by His holiness. The time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through breaks in the wall, and you will be cast out toward Harmon, declares the Lord. 
Right? It's, it's, it's judgment against Israel. Amos there is telling them what's going to happen because of their sin. It doesn't sound pleasant either, does it? Be taken out with fish hooks? I've got hooked with a fish hook before, a little one. Sounds terrible. In chapter 7 through chapter 9, verse 10 then, Amos has visions of divine retribution. And his point here is simply, Israel cannot escape God's judgment. Okay, the, the sentence has been handed down and judgment is coming. And then in the very last verses, Amos promises restoration and blessing. That's what we read at the very outset of our service tonight. In the very last verses, there is a word of hope. And the fact is, although judgment will come upon Israel for her sins, God will in the end deal mercifully with her. That is, even in judgment, as is always the case with God's elect, He will not abandon her or forsake her. What are some primary themes of Amos? What are some things you'll, 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 you'll see as you read this book? The first, the first primary theme is Israel's sin. Okay? Israel's sin is a major theme of this book, and he calls them out for two sins in particular. In the first place, he calls them out for their social injustice. Amos 2, uh, verse 7. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Amos 4.1, we read this one too. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy. Amos chapter 5, verses 10 and 12. You hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells you the truth. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you've built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you've planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. Okay, Amos calls the people out for their social injustice. God called his people uh, to, to, to love justice. He called his people to promote justice. He called his people to care for the orphan and the widow. He called his people to care for the fatherless and the oppressed. And he made provisions in his law back in the book of Leviticus to see to it that people's needs were met. Even things like gleaning and leaving some of the crops behind were all meant to ensure justice among the people and to ensure that people's needs were met. But they were, the people were doing no such thing in the days of Amos. They were practicing injustice. They were ignoring the poor. They were oppressing the needy. Amos calls them out for it. Sometimes um, today uh, in the church, and I I see this as a pastor, there is a movement uh, that is really passionate about social justice. And even in our own denomination, there's a movement that's really passionate about social justice. And uh, this is generally a more liberal wing of the Christian church. And sometimes you, you look on these people and you think they're getting a lot wrong. And I do think that many of these people are getting a lot wrong. I think in some cases they're getting the gospel wrong. Uh, but sometimes in kind of reaction to this social justice movement, uh, we, we, we swing too far the other way, and we maybe close our eyes uh, to the need for justice. And we need to be careful not to do that. I need to be 
careful not to do that. God's word is clear that his people are to be people who advocate for justice in society. And sometimes I think in the church, we, we maybe let our, our political persuasion and our um, disagreements with people swing us too far the other way. And so that's something the book of Amos really calls us out for, something it cautions us against, uh, something that I was convicted of a little bit, because um, certainly I've accused people, even in our own denomination, of being just kind of concerned about social justice and nothing else, and I still stand behind that, but at the same time, that doesn't mean you go so far the other way that you close an eye uh, to those who are in need. Anyway, the second sin he calls them out for is, uh, is empty religion. Empty religion. Uh, Amos 4, verses 4 and 5. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. Amos five twenty one uh, through 23. This is what we, we read at the outset, uh, and it's really interesting Um, juxtaposition here of the verses. I hate, I despise your religious feasts, the Lord says. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. The religion is empty. That's what the Lord's saying. There's nothing there. There's nothing heartfelt or sincere about all of these songs, all of this music. But if you look at the very next verse, it's clear. Their empty religion, it's betrayed by their social injustice. After saying, away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your hearts. The Lord says, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. It almost reminds me of of what James says, right? Right? Faith without works is dead, or, or, or show me your faith, I'll show you my works, or however James gets after it in James 2. God's kind of putting those two things together here, right? right? How, do I, how do I know? How do I know your religion's empty? Because you don't care about your neighbor. You don't care about that person in need. You don't care about the poor. You don't care about the needy among you. That's how I know your religion's empty. It's a lesson we can draw. From Amos, right? If, if, if you want to know how your relationship with God is, look at how you, look at how you treat others. Look, look, at, look at how you care for those in need whom come across your path. If you give of yourself for others, if you're a servant who puts others first, who cares for the needy, who gives that cup of cold water, that, that, that's, that's a good indicator that your relationship with God is, 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 in, is in pretty good shape. If you don't care about the needy, well, that's a good indicator that your relationship with God maybe isn't in a good place. A second theme is God's justice. We come across this theme again and again throughout the prophets. It's in Amos as well. God will not leave the guilty unpunished. This note is sounded over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And of course, uh, all of it points us ultimately to the cross, where indeed we see God won't leave the guilty unpunished. But look at here, look at here in Amos. It's there, chapters 1 and 2, for three sins of Damascus, even four, I won't turn back my wrath because she's threshed Gilead with sledges. For three sins of Gaza, even four, I won't turn back my wrath because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. 
For three sins of Tyre, even four, I will not turn back my wrath because she sold communities of captive to Edom and so on and so forth until the judgment again falls on Judah and Israel. God will not leave the guilty unpunished. God does not overlook sin and disobedience. There's never once in Scripture where God, where God overlooks it. There's some time when he remains patient in the face of it, but he never, ever overlooks it. A third theme is Amos's boldness. I love Amos. Sometimes as a preacher, you're called to say things that you know your audience will like and approve of, and preaching is very easy when you have to do that. This is how Amos's ministry began. He first spoke against the enemies of Israel. We just read about them, Damascus, Tyre, Gaza, Right? He spoke, about, spoke against the enemies of Israel. He proclaimed God's judgment against them. And no doubt the people of Israel listening to the sermon would have been saying, Amen, hallelujah, preach it, Amos. Right? Get our enemies. He then spoke against Judah. And we know there was a little bit of a rivalry right, between Israel and Judah. They didn't care much for their brothers to the north or to the south, depending on where you were. And, and as, he, as he proclaimed this message of judgment against Judah this, Judah, this too would have been well received. And the people again probably would have been like, amen, them losers up north, right? Amen. Or south, I guess. Israel was in the north. Those losers down south, it doesn't really matter. You get the, you get the gist of it. But then, but then Amos is called to speak against Israel herself, <laughs> And no doubt this is one of those messages that a preacher knows isn't going to be well received. And it wasn't well received. In chapter 7 we read about a priest whose name is Amaziah who, uh, who sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying that this fellow Amos is raising a, cons- a conspiracy against the king and against Israel. For he has said that Jeroboam will die by the sword, and all Israel will go into exile. That was, that was Amos' sermon one day, right? Jeroboam, king, your king, he's going to die, you're all going to go into exile, and the people didn't like it, and they went and told the king. Then this Amaziah himself, he, he approaches Amos, and he says, get out of here, you seer. Get out of here, you prophet. Go back to Judah. Leave us alone. We don't want you here. And Amos responds this way, I believe it's at the end of chapter 7, yeah it is, Uh, starting at verse, uh, where is it, starting at verse 14, thank you, thank you for for just helping me, was that you Joel, Mark, thank you. (laughs) Amos responds this way, verse 14, I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the house of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife, Amaziah, will become a prostitute in the city. And your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up. And you yourself will die in a pagan country. And Israel will certainly go into exile away from their native land. He does not back down, does he? Amos is bold. He continues prophesying without fear. And no doubt as he does, he, he reminds all of us of the reality we live by when you get down to it. And that's, it's that we... We serve an audience of one, right? It is God alone whom each of us 
we're called to please, are called to please, excuse me. Now, how does Amos point to Christ? I think there are several ways. In the first place, Jesus lived the life that Israel was supposed to. Israel was supposed to live a life characterized by justice and by righteousness, a life that was concerned for the needy and the poor. They did not. Jesus very much did, didn't he? We see this throughout the Gospels. Matthew 9, 35, 36, just one example. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus lived the life Israel was supposed to. He lived the life marked by concern for the needy, a life characterized by justice and righteousness. The exact opposite of Israel in the days of Amos. But Jesus also also died the death that Israel deserved. Look at Amos 8, verses 9 and 10, and just just listen to this. Hear the Lord again. He's, he's, He's pronouncing judgment against His people for their sins. This is what He says, Amos 8, verses 9 and 10. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will, I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. When you hear that, where does your... Where does your mind go? Your mind goes to, to the cross, doesn't it? Your mind ought to go to, to Good Friday, the sun going down at noon, the earth becoming dark in broad daylight, mourning for an only son during a religious festival. We've just looked at the festivals. Jesus was crucified during the, during the festival of Passover, Right, that takes our mind to the cross, that takes our mind to Good Friday. And surely as, as the scripture unfolds, it becomes apparent that the judgment God hands down here on his people for their sin, it's actually taken by another. <laughs> taken by Jesus. He lives the life Israel didn't. He dies the death Israel deserves. That's the gospel, right? We trust in Christ. Our sin is placed on him. His righteousness, his perfect obedience, it's credited to our account. Third way we see Jesus in the book of Amos is simply in the prophecy at the very end of the book. This is what we read, the beginning of the message about Israel being planted in their own land, never again to be uprooted. Right? one sense, we, we see this prophecy fulfilled after the exiles return from Babylon, but there, is, but there is a greater fulfillment. In verse 12, we're told that Israel will possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations along with it. Of course, this will only happen through Christ. It's in Christ and through Christ that Israel will possess the nations, as it were. It's in Christ and through Christ that, that Gentiles will become part of the Israel of God as they hear the gospel and as they repent of their sins and as they worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Finally then, 
a contemporary application. Hopefully we've took care of that already, but 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10 says, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We might say those two verses are illustrated by Israel in the days of Amos. The people have grown rich. Life has become easy. And they've fallen into temptation and trap and all kinds of evil. Amos 6.1 says this, and these are words that Christians here in America, who also live in a prosperous land, should take to heart. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. Woe to you who are at ease in the world. Woe to you who become fat and happy and forgotten the Lord your God. Certainly the same thing could be said about Christians in our land. Perhaps the same thing could be said and should be said to some of us who are here tonight. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. Woe to you who dine on choice lambs and eat fattened calves and drink wine by the bowlful, but do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. But do not care about those among you, some of whom worship with you on Sunday morning, who are in need of your help, who are in need of your mercy and your compassion and your justice. Dear friends, let it not be said about us, For Jesus' life was characterized by justice and righteousness, and not only was his justice and righteousness credited to our account when we put our faith in him, but his Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us in order that our lives might more and more resemble his, in order that we too might be people of justice and righteousness. In light of the book of Amos and the warnings therein, Dare we not forget the life to which each of us are called. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that all too often we are people who are at ease in Zion. We are people who have become complacent. We are people who have forgotten you. We are people who have looked at our abundance and have said, look what my hands have done. Forgive us, Lord. And help us to be more like Christ. Help us to be people who practice and promote justice and righteousness. Give us eyes to see those in our lives on a daily basis whom we might help, whom we might serve, whom we might minister to. For Jesus' sake, amen. going to sing take my life and let it be as a song of response that's number 170 uh, excuse me 379 in the blue book 379 and uh why don't we sing verses one two four and five can we do that one two four and five
parting blessing tonight. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May He turn His face toward you and grant you His peace. Amen. We'll close the doxology.